Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Today we've got a whole show for you about America. We're going to ask whether our institutions could be, you know, buffed up a little bit. We'll find out what kinds of things you overhear when you take a road trip across the country. And we'll ask, what's up with the American dream and whether it might have headed somewhere surprising? First up, though, let's rewind to the Civil War for a minute. As the war was gearing up, a British guy had a theory. It centered on the fact that democracy was a pretty good thing. Now, the American experiment was actually not going 100% gangbusters because we were about to start a war, but the British guy had confidence in the concept of democracy in general. And he thought, in fact, the more we can expand the populations that are included in that democracy, women, minorities, that's all to the good. That British guy was named John Stuart Mill. And now we've been conducting the experiment in democracy for well over 200 years. So here's my question to you. How do you think it's going? Political philosopher Jason Brennan thinks, hmm, things could be better. Mill hypothesized that if we all deliberate together, we might still disagree at the end, but we'll kind of go, well, you have a good point and you're reasonable and I like you and I can see what you're getting at. But not every hypothesis pans out. And he points to the work of a political scientist named Diana Mutz at the University of Pennsylvania. So she asked the following question. Um, You're a Democrat. Can you explain to me why someone might be a Republican? If you answer because they're stupid and evil, that predicts, (laughs) (laughs) which many people do, um, that predicts you're heavily engaged in politics. You give a lot of money to the Democratic Party, that you you protest and you write letters to the editor and you listen to political stations and things like that. If you say, well, I'm a Democrat, but let me explain the Republican point of view in a way that they would find appealing, that predicts you don't participate. Brennan is a professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at Georgetown University. And he's written a book about the issues that he has with democracy, or at least democracy as we have it set up in the U.S. It's called Against Democracy. He says that Mill was a real optimist, but over the last half century, some compelling research has begun to pile up. And it looks, unfortunately, like Mill got got it backwards. Uh, politics tends to make us meaner and dumber rather than smarter and nicer. You know, it's interesting because very often when you see people interviewed, just random people interviewed on the street, you know, like sort of on TV news, people say, well, you know, if I'm, I'm between two candidates, I've got to do more research. I've got to find out more about their positions, which you would think is actually a really good answer If what you're trying to do to figure out who you're going to vote for is go research how they feel about particular topics and see whether that makes sense, that seems like it would be making the average citizen smarter. It might if they actually did it. Um, But the thing is, they'll say that when you interview them because they feel like that's the right thing to say in the same way that like when you do an anonymous poll, people say they give more to charity than they actually do. They'll, They'll lie even though you don't know who they are. 
but they don't actually do the research. So when we study what Americans know about politics, it's incredibly depressing. You might think of it as the middle 50% of Americans know basically nothing. If we give them a multiple choice test, they do the equivalent of chance. The top quarter or so, which is likely to be your listeners, frankly, and I'm not saying to just suck up. It's just what the stats show. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, top, the top quarter get like an A minus, B plus on that test. And what's most depressing is the bottom quarter do worse than chance. Um, they get make systematic mistakes. So they get the wrong answer every time. And, and even then, when you think about doing your research, it sort of depends how you do it. So some people come into research with an open mind. They're like, I'm not sure what the truth is, and I want to discover it. But most people who are engaged heavily in politics are, are very biased. And what they do is they look for research that reinforces whatever they currently believe, and they ignore research that uh, says that they're wrong. In fact, typically, if you give people research that says that they're wrong, they actually become more convinced that they're right. So are you saying that what we really need is the smart people to run things? Yeah. So the the issue with democracy is not that people are inherently stupid. Um, people are good at running their own lives. They're smart and day to day. But it gives us sort of the wrong incentives. The problem here is the chance that my individual vote will make a difference is vanishingly small. Um, it depends on what state you live in. You, like if you're in Massachusetts, uh, sorry, your vote doesn't yeah. really count. <laughs> it's not a good um, chance. Yeah, that's right. Because our chances of being decisive are so small, we don't have a very strong incentive to process information in a rational way or even to gather information. So a metaphor I like to use is if I'm about to cross the street, I look both ways, not because I find traffic interesting, but because I need to know what's happening or I might die. And if I see a Mack truck barreling towards me, I wouldn't dare indulge the fantasy that it's actually the Transformer Optimus Prime, my childhood hero, coming to take me to an adventure because I'll die if I'm wrong about that. But uh, in politics, I can afford to be ignorant, I can afford not to look both ways, and I can afford to indulge the fantasies. And so unfortunately, most of us do that. Okay, so let's take the other side of the, the idea of elitists uh, helping others, the FDR idea. You know, the, the conservative William F. Buckley made this case that he'd rather have something like the top 1,000 people, the first 1,000 people in the Boston phone book um, yeah. run the country rather than the 1,000 people on the faculty at Harvard, right? With the idea that knowledge is not that helpful. So what makes you even think that knowledge, that elitism is helpful to running the country? Yeah, you know, he might be right that it would be better to have the first thousand people in the Cambridge phone book than the Harvard faculty, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> America as a whole versus like some subset of Americans is the best thing. One of the issues here is we can look at how does knowledge change people's policy preferences? And we actually have lots of data on this. So there's this thing called the American National Election Studies. And every two years, they go around asking a lot, like 40,000 Americans, what do you know? What do you care? Like, what do you want to have happen in politics? And who are you? Like, are you male, female, rich, poor, etc.? And when you get all this information, you can use basically second semester statistics to figure out how does knowledge affect our policy preferences? What would happen to the American public if they were fully informed according to the, the basic quiz they get here? Right. What would happen if they were completely ignorant? And we actually can find that the policy preferences of the American public as a whole very closely match what an ignorant public would want, and they don't very much match what an informed public would want. One, one interesting thing that happens is as Americans are, become, are better informed, they start thinking about economics issues more like the way economists do. 
So for example, economists both left and right are very strongly in favor of free trade. Um, they're in favor of increasing immigration and so on. And we're finding the exact opposite sort of policy preferences among uh, the general population. One of the most interesting findings about voter behavior, and there's like dozens and dozens of studies showing this now, is that people don't vote their pocketbook, which is really surprising because most people are quite selfish in the data in their day-to-day lives. Um, they don't give that much money to charity. They don't help other people that much. Yet, for years and years, political scientists have been studying, well, do voters vote their pocketbook? And we don't just survey them. We'll, ask, we'll do independent thoughts like, well, this would be to your advantage. Do you vote that way? And it looks like people are actually what we would call technically nationalist sociotropes, which, mean, which means that they vote for what they perceive to be the national interest. And the reason they do that appears to be because if you're selfish, you wouldn't bother vote in the first place. You better serve your self-interest by watching television or playing video games or eating a sandwich than you do for casting a vote for a person who's offering you something. So people, they vote to sort of express their fidelity to their sense of justice. It's they, they mean well. They just don't know a lot. That's the problem. It's not, it's not about motivation. It's about their cognition. So, you know, I, I think to a lot of people hearing this, uh, they think... You know, everything we've thought that's true, you're trying to debunk, that democracy is good, that the more people who vote, the better. Boy, if we could only get those millions of people who sit on the couch on election day or not not even sit on the couch, who just go to work and don't go to the polls, um, who don't have time, you know, don't have the means, whatever. If we could get everybody out to the polls, boy, wouldn't that be better? And, and, you know, when you think about um, voting, what we want to do is get more and more groups of people to be able to vote. So I think in some ways the, the conventional wisdom is no matter what you know or what you don't know, voting should be a basic human right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and there's a question of why do people think that? So I, first of all, is democracy good? I'd say yes. It's clear that de- overall democracies perform better than other forms of governmental systems that we've tried. The best places to live right now are liberal democracies, not other kinds of systems. But for me, Asking whether democracy is good is like asking whether the BMW 3 Series is good. Yeah, it's good, but it could be better. It's not perfect. It has flaws. Um, So then it comes down to the question of what is the kind of value that democracy has? And a metaphor I like to use is I ask people how they value different things. I say, when you think of a hammer, you value it for its instrumental value. It serves a purpose, and you would never try to use a hammer when a wrench would work, or you'd always go for a better hammer rather than a worse one. When you think of a value of a painting, you care about who made it and what it symbolizes and what feelings it evokes. And when you think about people, you tend to think that there are ends in themselves. So then we can ask, well, what kind of value does democracy have? Is it like a hammer? Is it like a painting? Or is it like a person? And the conventional wisdom in the U.S. is that democracy has the value that a painting and a person has. It's an end in itself. It's inherently just. It expresses the right things. And what I'm trying to argue is that we should just think of democracy as being like a hammer. And if we can find a better hammer, we should use it. So one thing that's obviously happened um, in the U.S., but in other countries, too, over time, over the course of our democracy, is that more people have become able to vote, right? You had a very uh, small slice of the population originally that was allowed to cast a ballot. Over time, you know, minorities who weren't able to, women who weren't able to, all became part of that electorate, younger people. Um, Are you saying, I mean, what's your vision? Is your vision that we cut back down again to a small slice of people who are allowed to cast a ballot? Yeah. So in the in the past, it was just property owners uh, who could vote in the United States, male property owners, um, except for, I guess, in a few states, women could vote early. 
Um, and they eventually expanded that. And there are big problems with that because the people who were voting were racist. They had liberal attitudes. They were anti-women. Um, and we basically expanded the right to vote at the same time that the general population also started to have favorable attitudes towards the people who'd been denied. Um, I do think that past political inequality has almost always been unjust. It's been on absurd bases like are you Christian or are you the right religion or are you the right sex? And um, it's been insulting to people to deny them the right to vote for that reason. And in fact, they're denied the right to vote very explicitly to say that they're inferior. That said... Um, we could instead think of the right to vote as being nothing more than a plumbing license. And we could imagine like the equivalent of that. We have no real special status. And we could imagine a, a world in which uh, or a system in which the right to vote is apportioned according to political knowledge. So in the same way that it would be it would make, would make sense to deny someone the right to drive because he's an atheist or because he's gay. But we do deny people the right to drive if they're incompetent at driving. What if we were to do something like that with regard to voting? Your ability to vote or right to vote depends to some degree on your basic political knowledge. You know, clearly over time, uh, there have been, uh, you know, quote unquote tests given at the polls that very often were designed to uh, take certain people out of the voting pool, right, to disenfranchise them. Do you worry that a new sort of test could be in that vein of disenfranchising people? Uh, yes, I do, in a sense. Um, so for what it's worth, and I haven't really argued for this, but I, I don't think anyone has an inherent right to vote. I think the reason we should give you or me a right to vote is because of what it does for everybody, not because of what it does for you or me. But it is true that if you have any kind of test system, people are going to try to abuse it for their own benefit. I'm not as worried about it being done in a racist way now as it would have been in the past because people are just significantly less racist than they would be. And also, if there were a test like this, it's clear that everyone would be hyper vigilant looking into racial bias. So it'd be difficult to get away with it. Um, the same way that when certain parties in certain states try to use voter IDs to disenfranchise people, everyone calls them on and there's a tremendous amount of attention. I think the thing here, though, to think about is not, is the system going to be perfect? Is it going to be free of failures and flaws and abuse? Of course, it's not going to be. It's more of a question of, does this system with all its flaws and failures and warts work better than our current system with all its flaws and failures and warts? We're not comparing an ideal to an ideal. We're comparing a a messed up system of one sort to a messed up system of another and asking, well, which one's better? Okay. So here you've put this theory out there. In some ways, it's very, you know, we talked about this as very kind of contrary to what we all think, which is like democracy is good and as many people as can possibly vote, uh, you know, that's the best. Um, have you gotten pushback? Like, what have you heard back from people? Uh the most common objection that I get from, say, philosophers is the view that democracy is inherently just because it expresses something. That to have a democratic system is to say something about the value of people. So what I'm trying to push for is this idea that we, should, we shouldn't regard participating in politics as majestic. We shouldn't regard the right to vote as anything different from a hairdressing license or a plumbing license. But it's clear that the, the culture is definitely on the other side. Jason Brennan is the author of Against Democracy. He's a professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at Georgetown University. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. And now a dip into history for the story of a quintessentially American invention— 
When it was created in the 1930s, it became a sensation. It launched scores of businesses. It enhanced life for those in the military. And if I had to guess, I'd bet that you've bought hundreds, maybe thousands of this invention over time. It was dreamed up by a woman, Ruth, who was a former home ec teacher, but she finally found her calling when she bought an old house in Massachusetts with her husband somewhere around 1930. The idea was to turn it into a restaurant. And when it came to food, Ruth knew what she was doing. Her restaurant was run with military-like precision and impeccable service. It was famous for quintessential New England fare like lobster. And celebrities made it a point to stop at the restaurant. People like Eleanor Roosevelt and Betty Davis and Rocky Marciano. But Ruth was always on a hunt for new recipes. She traveled around the world for inspiration. And on her way back from Egypt, this is the story that she later told a reporter, she came up with an idea for a dessert that would change America. And some people would argue displace apple pie as the great American treat. Ruth had been serving a butterscotch cookie to go with ice cream, but she thought she could do better. So she broke up a Nestle chocolate bar and added bits of chocolate to cookie batter. Ruth Wakefield named the resulting cookie after her restaurant, the Toll House, and it was a smash. It became so popular so quickly that Nestle wondered why sales of its semi-sweet chocolate bar were picking up. When the company did figure it out, They were, of course, intrigued, and they soon decided that they would offer small bits of chocolate in bags instead of making home and restaurant cooks break up the big bars. They also asked Wakefield if they could put her recipe on their packaging so that anybody could make Toll House chocolate chip cookies. But these cookies were largely popular along the East Coast until World War II stationed soldiers from every part of the country together on bases across the world. And many of them started getting these new Toll House cookies in care packages. Chocolate was hard to get during the war, but women often saved their chocolate to put in cookies that they would send to soldiers. Another reason that Toll House cookies became popular was this. One of the very first people to get a copy of the recipe, this is before Nestle printed it on their bags, was another great inventor of the 20th century. Her name was Marjorie Husted, and you probably don't know her but you almost certainly know her invention. It's an invention that for many of us is part of lovely, hazy childhood memories. But Marjorie Husted did not invent something tangible like Ruth Wakefield had. Instead, she helped to dream up an idea, an idea of a classic American woman, the sort of woman who would, and who did, spread the word about Toll House cookies on a radio program. And what was the name of this woman who helped make Ruth Wakefield's invention so famous? Betty Crocker. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. About 20 years ago, I took a train from Massachusetts to Iowa. I thought it would be romantic. I thought I'd discover America. Turns out my seat was broken. Worst ride of my life. Iowa, though, was amazing. And for someone who had mostly grown up in East Coast suburbia, I felt like I was discovering America. I told my mom that Iowa was so great that we had to go back. And we did. We went to Living History Farms in Urbandale, where you truck through farmland that connects farmhouses from different eras. 
There's a main street from 1875. It has all sorts of shops on it. We went to Pella, which is a Dutch town in flat farm country. They've got tulip queens and Dutch architecture and Dutch pastries. Obviously, we talk a lot about divisions in this country. And those divisions are certainly ideological, but they're also geographical, which you know if you've ever seen one of those red and blue election night maps. So why the geographical differences? Does geography itself, farmland, mountains, suburbs, oceans, do they shape us? And do they push us towards who we ultimately become? Robert Kaplan is here to answer those questions. He's the author of the book, Earning the Rockies, How Geography Shapes America's Role in the World. And it took him on a trip, not for the first time, across America. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Robert, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. So you write in your book that we used to think of America as kind of this... uh, geographic through line, the the cliche, see to shining sea, but that we don't really anymore. Uh, How do we see it differently, do you think? Um, For most Americans, our airports have become the new bus stations. So people fly everywhere and they get in a plane and they fly from the East Coast to the Rocky Mountains and they think that geography has been defeated. Hmm. Uh, uh, What I found out in multiple trips across America and in a lot of reading is that geography still defines us. For instance, did you know that America has more miles of navigable inland waterways than much of the rest of the world combined? I did not. And it's that river system and how it's laid out across the Midwest is what made America a great power originally in the 19th century. And, you know, if you live in Nebraska or Iowa or Wyoming, your attitude towards foreign affairs, towards America's role in the world can be very different. And there Hmm. are a lot of reasons for it, but one of them is geographical. Hmm. So obviously, uh, a lot of the issues that we think the most about as a country that we debate about abortion, climate change, immigration. We think of those things as things that exist in our heads, right? You know, how you think about climate change is that's in your head. That's not a physical thing. Um, But do you think that there are places that people live that actually have these kind of subtle influences in terms of thinking about whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy or whatever it is that like influences how they think about these issues that you could think of as like, oh, but these are just ideas. These aren't physical things. Um, I think what's happened is this. It sounds ironic, but just stay with me for a moment. Okay. <laughs> that, glo- that globalization, meaning technology, the jet age, cyber connectivity, um, it has shrunk the earth. Technology has made geography smaller and more claustrophobic, but mm. it has not defeated it. So what happens is that we're swept up into a world maelstrom, a world system, and a part of our population adapts very well to it. And they generally live along the two coasts in the major college towns in some vibrant intercontinental cities. And there's another part of the population that has been left behind, that for one reason or another has not been swept up into it. So that globalization, rather than make America disappear into the world, has redivided it. Hmm. I actually, I want to read a quote from your book that 
that kind of um, struck me. This is from Ernie in the Rockies. Uh, so you write about millions of people, and here's a quote, who feel their way of life is being endangered and fear being economically left behind in this new world of slim people on low-carb diets with stylish clothes, a world where both skin tone and sexual orientation are not singular but multiple and celebrated for that. So talk about that gap that you perceived and, um, and, and you know, the implications of it. Yes, I took this journey, my latest journey, in the spring of 2015. So um, at that time, a name like Donald Trump was just meant a real estate developer right, in right. Manhattan. A, a TV, how about more. a TV star? Right, yeah, um, which I never watched. But, uh, you know, in other words, an obscure celebrity on the New York Post. And, and I left the East Coast and I drove across the Appalachians. And once you get into central Pennsylvania and West Virginia and the Ohio River Valley and all the way to the greater Los Angeles suburbs Mm -hmm. with intermittent islands of college towns like Bloomington, Indiana, and a vibrant state capital like Des Moines, Iowa, Mm -hmm. away from that, all you saw were shelled out towns of 20,000 or so where a lot of the storefronts were empty, where there were very few people on the street except for homeless people. Uh, I listened to a lot of conversations. What I did was be an eavesdropper, and it was all about financial problems of one sort or another or medical problems of one sort or another. There was almost no overt discussion of politics. So people were not talking about politics, but all of their worries and problems had to do with politics. It, it was, it, I saw a nation united by their worries, by people's right. worries. Just a general dissatisfaction, it sounds like, yes. too. Uh, yeah. Yes, an alienation. Because a discussion of politics does not mean alienation. It means you're involved in the process. Um, But when you're not talking about it at all and your life, based on the conversations I overheard, is just awful or dreary or miserable, that's alienation. Have you heard from people uh, saying, like, whoa, maybe you did hear this dissatisfaction, but my town's great and, you know, I I don't know if things are quite as bleak as you're portraying them as. Um, It's interesting because I've been a travel writer for decades and I've written books about a lot of parts of the world. You get used to people writing you and saying, I visited that place and Mm. that's not how I saw it. You know, that's very common because every view of a place begins inside you. It's very individual. But with this book, I've yet to hear that. I probably will at some point. What I've heard so far is, yes, sadly, that's very much how it looks. Hmm. You know, you talked about um, that things started to be different in some ways when you crossed the Appalachians. And um, I wonder why, like, why are the Appalachians a dividing line? Um, you know, why, why did you sense, it sounds like, such a different feeling in the middle of the country? 
Uh, yes, but it's more complex than that. For instance, uh, take Missouri. Um, if you went into, you know, the wealthy suburbs of St. Louis or much of Kansas City, people were part of a globalized world. They hmm. were not alienated. Hmm. They were what you would call liberal. But yet Missouri was carried substantially by the Republicans in the recent election because between the big cities, you entered another America. Hmm. So it's a rural-urban divide. It's it's a coast interior divide. It's a college town, not college town divide. Hmm. And, and, and in the center of the country, because of the vast spaces in between towns, remember, this country is really divided between east of the 100th meridian, west of the 100th meridian. The 100th meridian runs down the center of the Dakotas, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. Hmm. East of that, you've got a lot of water. West of that, you're in a semi-desert. And so the towns are less, the highways are less, the railroad tracks are less. And in those places, you know, the outside world, Europe, Asia, does not seem real. It does not seem substantial to you. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Robert Kaplan, author of the book, Earning the Rockies, How Geography Shapes America's Role in the World. Um, when you look at America and you compare it to its counterparts, you've you've been a foreign correspondent. You've uh, thought spent a lot of your life thinking about actually other countries and and foreign conflicts and that sort of thing. Um, how do you feel like we are different from other countries in terms of how geography has shaped us? We are obviously a lot more isolated than many places. You know, think about a place like Germany. I mean, they're just smack dab in the middle of a ton of countries. Um, and like, how does that play out in our politics? Well, I get frustrated when, uh, you know, members of the uh, the governing elite and others in the cosmopolitan elite on the East Coast say geography doesn't matter anymore. You know, technology's defeated it. And my response is, you can say that only because America has benefited so much from geography that you're in a position to ignore it. But if you were a Romanian or a Pole or a Taiwanese or places where I visited often, you always hear people say we are victims of our geography, we're prisoners of our geography. And America, you know, in terms of its economic problems, in terms of its social and political problems, is still, I would argue, structurally better off, geographically better off, economically and politically better off than the problems of the Chinese, of the Russians, or of the Europeans. It's not that we're doing so great, but we're not doing quite as badly as <laughs> these other rival powers. But does it, does it, um, I mean, you talked about uh, America being disconnected, and this has always been, I mean, obviously World War One, World War Two. they weren't fought on American soil, and that made all the difference, because for a lot of countries, they were, you know, there were bombs dropped there and so on. Um, it, is that Bad in a way, too, though, because as much as we've talked about refugees and, you know, they are not pouring over our borders from Syria in the same way uh, or from different countries in the Middle East, you know, as sort of coming out of the Arab Spring. Um, that is not happening to us in the same way that it's happening, Absolutely. let's say, to Europe. Right. I mean, Europe is real. You I mean, you know, you can close your eyes, but you can't make it go away. 
Exactly. Americans are a naive people because of their geography. Every rival power, Japan, every place in Europe, Russia, China, had their urban infrastructures, their industrial infrastructures decimated to the ground during World War II, and we were untouched. Europeans have throngs of refugees pouring in, not just from the war-torn Middle East, but from sub-Saharan Africa, Mm. because Europe Europe is so close to it. It's so proximate. The Chinese are terrified of trying to change the North Korean regime because if there was regime collapse in North Korea, two million North Koreans would rush over the Yalu River into northeastern China. Mm. Um, So America can talk just very flippantly about we need a better regime in North Korea because if there was a regime collapse, it would not affect us to the degree that it would affect affect the Chinese. And also, Americans are upset about the Mexican border, about illegal immigration. This is nothing whatsoever Mm. compared to what the Europeans and others have to deal with or are worried about. If you think ahead to, uh, you know, a road trip that that would occur in 20 years from now, um, are, are there hints from what you've seen of what's coming the very limitation of water will make it impossible for, say, Nebraska, Wyoming, Utah to suddenly be all urbanized. That's never going to happen. Um, one of the facts in my book is while Iowa is 100 percent arable, in other words, you could grow crops anywhere hmm. there, Utah is only 3 percent arable. Whoa. In other words, outside of 3 percent of Utah, you, you'd need a major irrigation system to grow anything. Hmm. So the the lack of water puts a limit on development. Um, So I think we're going to see, if I were to do this trip in 20 years, I would see even a greater New York City or a greater Washington, you know, develop into real city states, so to speak, where New York City would exist between Albany in the north all the way to central New Jersey in the south. That I can imagine. It keeps pushing out of like where, quote unquote, New York is. Right, exactly. But I would be very surprised if there were that much more people in the water-starved parts of the West or in the Rocky Mountain West. Robert Kaplan is the author of the book Earning the Rockies, How Geography Shapes America's Role in the World. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Robert, thank you so much. This is great. It's been my pleasure. I know nothing about inland waterways, but if you want to check out how water shapes and divides us, we've got a great candy-colored picture of U.S. river basins. It's at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. James Truslow Adams is probably not a name that most of us have ever heard, but he coined a term that I'm guessing you know. Adams was a historian in the early part of the 20th century, and he wrote a book that tried to capture the essence of America, And part of that essence, he said, was three simple words. 
Three words that have changed the way people all around the world think about this country. The American dream. Since Adams came up with that phrase, people have wondered all sorts of things. Who owns the American dream? Where is it headed? Whether it's dead? So at this time of year, as we think about the birth of our country, it's a good time to ponder the dreams that define it. Scott Gilmore, for one, says the American dream is not dead at all. It's alive and well. And in his view, living in Canada. Gilmore is a former Canadian diplomat, a columnist for Maclean's, a contributor to the Boston Globe, and author of the essay, The American Dream Has Moved to Canada. Scott, thanks for being here. Kara, it's my pleasure. So when did you start thinking that Canada was maybe more of a home for the American dream than America? Well, it was very recently. Um, my family has deep American roots. My parents live in the States. My my brother works in the, in the States. I have worked back and forth in New York for years. And I have always seen America as being the American dream. It's it's the land of opportunity. It's where great ideas go to, to thrive. And then we had this strange thing happen in Canada over, uh, over the last few months, which is we've got refugees arriving on our southern border, hmm. which has almost never happened before. And they're either refugees who have already arrived in the United States and now are feeling threatened and have decided to try their luck in Canada. They feel they might be safer there. Or increasingly, it's economic migrants and refugees coming from Central America who are making their way, as we've seen for decades, north up across the Rio Grande in the United States. But they keep going now. Hmm. They're, going, they're, they're walking into Canada. And... So I decided to take a look one day at what their life will look like in Canada versus the United States. And I was surprised at what I found. Hmm. So obviously in America, uh, there are different views on people immigrating, refugees coming here. Is Canada concerned about immigrants coming over their southern border? There's a debate in Canada, but the level of concern is much lower than what you see in the United States or in Europe. And what makes that particularly interesting is that I think in the United States right now, 11% of the population is foreign-born. In Canada, it's 20%. Um, and it's the same when you compare Canada to, to Europe. We have far more foreign-born citizens or, or non-citizens in Canada than, than most other countries. And yet, we're much, much more accepting of the idea of taking in newcomers and refugees and asylum seekers and immigrants. Canada has set up a system uh, where you have two types of refugees, basically. You have refugees that are accepted by the government, and then you have refugees that are sponsored by Canadian citizens. So if you get five people together, you can sponsor somebody from Syria to come to Canada, and you're responsible at that point to make sure that, you know, that they know that they buy their winter clothes, that they set up a hmm. bank account and that. And what we found is that with the, the refugees that are coming in under the government program, um, they're they're being looked after the Canadian welfare system to the extent that it that it's needed is used, and they have a relatively difficult time as newcomers integrating. A um, relatively not, difficult time. A relatively difficult time okay. in, in the Canadian context. They still integrate much much better than what we're seeing in places in Europe, in Germany, Netherlands, or in parts of the United States. Canada in, is not a melting pot; it's a mosaic, and and we tend to absorb other cultures and other peoples. Um, in, in a smoother fashion. But what's interesting is that the refugees that are being sponsored by Canadian citizens are thriving 
they're integrating very, very quickly. It's because they immediately are being plugged into social networks that usually transcend their language or cultural group. Um, they're having an easier time finding jobs, easier time finding housing, and they're it's turning into quite a success story. Hmm. Okay, so this is super interesting to me that if you get together, you're saying, with like four of your friends, you right. can sponsor somebody to come over from Syria. How many ordinary Canadians are getting together and doing that kind of thing? Um, the demand is greater than the supply. Uh, there are more Canadians that are stepping up than the government's willing to actually allow in. And I think it's because it, it plays on a couple of Canadian um, touchstones. So in the, the boat people crisis of the 1970s, Canada took in a, a large number of Vietnamese and other South Asian um, refugees. And they integrated very, very well across the country and became part of the Canadian story. And so this idea of taking a refugee into your suburban community your or your your uh, you know your rural small town that wasn't so alien it wasn't so strange it seemed like something that Canadians do hmm. you know I, I talked about um, James Adams in the beginning the guy who came up with this uh, this phrase the American dream he he thought that dream was about mobility that you could essentially come from anywhere with any background um, and succeeding in America was a lot more about talent than, say, you know, he thought about old Europe and it was much more about station, let's say, and money and that kind of thing. Um, how do you define the American dream or, or we could say the Canadian dream, but, but like what the dream is uh, now in today's world for success and, and inclusion, the, the way that, you know, we think of the American dream? You know, I think that the... the the public imagination of the American dream has been fairly consistent in both the United States and, and Canada and the world going back 100 years. It's the idea of going from rags to riches, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, self-made man, all of those cliches right. um, embody this idea that you're right, no matter who you are or or where you come from or who your parents are, that you could end up one day like Steve Jobs mm. or Donald Trump. Right. And Steve when Jobs, I, who interestingly, the son of a Syrian. Exactly. Yeah. And Donald Trump, the grandson of a, of a German. Right, right. When I began to see these refugees coming across the border and I began to take a look at some of these numbers of, you know, what will their life be like in Canada versus the United States, I began to look at the idea of opportunity and social mobility. And I was stunned at what I found, which is that social mobility in the United States has declined. And more importantly, it's been surpassed by a lot of other countries in Europe and in Canada. So right now... If you're living or born into the poorest quintile, the, the poorest one-fifth of the population, you're twice as likely to make it to the top of the, of the food chain, to become the, the top quintile for wealth in Canada than you are in the United States. Huh. And similarly, the correlation between the income that your parents make and the income that you eventually make is twice as strong in the United States as it is in Canada. Hmm. Was there a point at which Canada and America started to diverge? Where do you see that happening? When? So as an outside observer, I've spent a lot of time in the United States and, and traveled across it quite extensively. But I still will put an asterisk on my observations. I'm, I'm, I'm not living in the United States. I'm not American. And so these are upside observations. But to the outsider, it, the differentiation began with the healthcare issues and education issues. You see in the United States a healthcare system that's unlike anything else in the world, where more money is spent on it with fewer, with poorer outcomes than anywhere else. So Americans' um, life expectancy 
used to lead the world. It's now fallen far behind most other countries, including countries like Cuba. The cost of your education, this used to be the great leveler in the United States. Now education comes with very, very high costs. And so from my perspective, what you're seeing in the United States is that there are some systemic issues that are making it more and more difficult for the poor to succeed. Because whether it's healthcare costs that are bankrupting somebody who's living on $35,000 a year and breaks their leg and and that alone prevents them from making their mortgage payments Mm -hmm. or their inability to put their kid into a good school because they simply can't get the student loans or they can't carry the tuition costs. That has a huge impact, I think, on the overall health of the society. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Scott Gilmore, a former Canadian diplomat and author of the column, The American Dream Has Moved to Canada. Do you think that there are particular policies that Canada has enacted over the last few decades, say, um, and it can be more recent if you want, um, that you think were have paid off in a way that um, has allowed it to you know, in your words, kind of capture the American dream maybe a little bit more than than America has? Well, for example, Canada has a very conservative banking regulatory system. And as a result, it's much more difficult for our banks to issue subprime loans. Hmm. And as a result, we escaped the economic collapse that we we saw in, in other countries. And our poor parts of our society were not as badly affected as a result. But I wouldn't give too much credit to Canadian policymakers uh, having some sort of special wisdom. I think a lot of the differences that we're seeing between Canada and the United States have to do with luck and have to do with geographic location. So Canada has one neighbor, the United States. It's a really good neighbor. As a result, we don't have to worry about our border defenses. Hmm. In fact, because we sit within you know the security zone of the United States, we can neglect our military entirely, which frees up billions and billions of dollars every hmm. year for other, for other um, causes and for the for the welfare system. So uh, back for a minute to the issue of immigration that we were talking about before. Um, clearly in the U.S., our policies around immigrants are changing, and that's still in flux. We don't fully know where it's headed. Um, but just thinking about economics here, uh, about creativity and invention, do you think that Canada has been saying to refugees and immigrants who are more in the high-skilled category, if you can't get a visa to come to the U.S., or if you just don't know where immigration policies are headed in the U.S., uh, come to Canada. Like, their loss is our gain. You know, I have to confess, Canada always suffers from, I would argue, from a chronic sense of smugness on some things. And <laughs> and it's getting a little bit more acute these days because mm. we are benefiting from a lot of the policy decisions that are being taken in the United States right now. Um, we are seeing a movement of people, you know, like you like you suggested, well-educated entrepreneurs, business travelers, possible immigrants who are looking at Canada now. Foreign students are now looking at Canadian universities much more enthusiastically than they have in the past. And and do you see? I, I wonder if you hear from CEOs from the tech community, um, uh, uh, just sort of anecdotally about. You know, more people being sent to Vancouver because, look, they're it's, you know, in the same time zone as a lot of American cities, um, uh, you know, on the on the West Coast or to Toronto or wherever it is, because you can work there. You can Skype with um, your colleagues in the U.S. and maybe you don't have to go through the kind of, you know, red tape. 
Absolutely. It's not just anecdotal. Uh, the, the numbers back it up. Um, it's becoming part of the corporate strategy in Canada to take advantage of the proximity of the United States, our close economic integration, but at the same time, the ease of doing business here. So it's easier to fly into Canada. It's easier to pass through Canadian customs uh, for on a business visa than it is in the United States. Um, anecdotally, there aren't the hassles that we're now seeing going into the United, into the, across the U.S. border. Um, so it, it it is absolutely part of Canada's strategy, and not just in the high tech sector. Things like the movie industry as well mm. is now uh, growing rapidly in both Toronto and Vancouver because of these issues. Does our uh, 2016 election factor into your thinking on this, or is the this issue of the American dream maybe migrating north? Is that something that is occurring on a much longer, bigger time scale? Well, it, it was the election that provoked me into thinking about this and into looking into the numbers. And and because of that, I discovered that homeownership is higher in Canada, education rates are higher, the, the costs of education are lower, life expectancies are longer, vacation time is longer in Canada, and it goes on and on and on. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is much easier achieved objectively now in Canada and the United States. But those numbers did not change on the day of the election. Some of these represent trends that go back 40, 50, 60 years. And so I think the United States has done a very, very good job of marketing the American dream, much more so than Canada has in in even coining the phrase the Canadian dream. Um, But now that there are such stark differences on the political landscape, and not just between Washington and Ottawa, between Washington and all of its allies, we're looking at those things a little more closely and we're beginning to question some of our assumptions about what it's like to live in the United States. Scott Gilmore is a former Canadian diplomat. He's a columnist for Maclean's and author of the essay, The American Dream Has Moved to Canada. Scott, thank you so much. Kara, my pleasure. Scott mentioned some stats that may not make the U.S. look so great up against Canada. One of the ones he talked about is lifespan. People in Canada live a little bit more than two years longer on average than people in the U.S. Another stat is about getting a college degree. 57% of young adults in Canada have gotten a college degree. In the U.S., the number is 14 percentage points lower, 43%. We've got Scott's article, The American Dream Has Moved to Canada, and more data pitting Canada against the U.S. on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producer Mark Sollinger, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also have production help from Marielle Carricker and Samantha Crozier. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover, care, believe. And by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI Public Radio International.